Welcome to Wake Up Watch Podcast. I am Dewana McCray, and I am here with Danielle Williams and Mike Tomasulu. So in line with the Halloween spirit, today we are venturing into the dark and spooky land of the unknown, and we'll be discussing the 2020 presidential election and how it may shape the IP landscape generally and in Wake Up. So we know that under the Obama administration, the Leahy-Smith America Events Act was enacted. That was generally viewed as strengthening patent rights. So today we want to discuss what has happened under the Trump administration and what will continue to happen if President Trump is reelected, as well as what will happen under a Biden administration to the patent world if Biden is elected in November 2020. Before we even jump into those topics, Mike and Danielle, how are you both doing today? Terrific. Well, I'm doing great. Uh, and you're right. This is a this is a spooky topic, and it's appropriate for Halloween. <laughs> Let's dive right in. Let's start with the Trump administration. Um, Trump has been in office, as we know, for almost four years. Mike, starting with you, can we just discuss generally um, what has happened under the Trump administration as it relates to IP, IP litigation, patent world, patent rights? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that is noteworthy about the Trump administration is the appointment of of Andre Iancu, the head of the USPTO. He is uh, a remarkably pro-patentee, head of the PTO. Small little personal tidbit, he and I started work together the same day at Lion & Lion before he moved on to Irela Manella. Irela Manella has a reputation as being a successful plaintiff's practice firm as well as defense, but I think that as the head of the PTO, he's brought a remarkably pro-patentee, pro-patent owner uh, attitude towards the PTO. And I think there have been several notable things that you could point to in that regard. What do you think, Danielle? I think that's right. I think mostly about the the sunset of the covered business method uh, review procedure that was in the, the AIA and just the allowance for it to sunset without any uh, discussion on whether it should continue. It's just one example of how Mr. Iancu has been a pro-patentee during his tenure. Yeah. Also, I think that the, the the rise of the discretionary denials and the guidance that the patent office has given on 101 eligibility uh, are both pro-patentee. So on 101, let me say what I mean here more clearly. The, the federal circuit obviously has to follow the Supreme Court precedent, as does the USPTO, but there is no requirement that the USPTO follow federal circuit precedent in terms of issuing its guidelines regarding patent eligibility. And and the under Mr. Yanku, the guidelines for patent eligibility that govern whether you whether or not the USPTO will issue you a patent have been more lenient than the standards applied by the federal circuit to determine whether the court should invalidate your patent as being directed to ineligible subject matter. I think that what's going on there is that uh, because the Supreme Court's guidance is unclear, Mr. Yanku must think that it's better to let people have their patents now under looser standards, and who knows what those standards will be for patent eligibility in the future, but better to allow them to have a patent now rather than to issue, issue refuse to issue patents 
under the more stringent standards of the federal circuit. But regardless of what his motivations may have been or the patent office's motivations may have been in that regard, the result is it is a pro-patentee policy at the USPTO. The federal circuit can never take a patent from you if they don't give it to you in the first place. And then the other way I think that, as Danielle was explaining, is is the decisions at the PT at the the patent trial and appeal board, the PTAB, have been uh, drifting towards being more pro patentee under Mr. Iancu's tenure and during the Trump administration. I think that the statistics for institution are down, and Danielle, we all know about the discretionary denials that have been popping up in the last year or so, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. For those who are listening who do not know about the discretionary denials, can you give a little bit more background about that? Yeah. So the standard in the that was promulgated is that when a patent is challenged in an in an IPR and the petition goes to the patent trial and appeal appeal board requesting that the patent trial and appeal board institute a trial to determine whether or not the patent is invalid or contains claims it should be invalidated, the standard is more likely than not. And recently, the PTAB has been issuing denials of institution that are not based on that standard, but are based on discretionary factors, such as the existence of a parallel proceeding. Let me give you an example. In the precedential case of Apple versus Fintiv, Apple filed a petition seeking to have Fintiv's patent invalidated by the PTAB, and the PTAB declined to institute the trial, not because it thought that the grounds were weak, but because there was a a parallel case pending in the district court, and that case was going to get to trial before the PTAB could reach its decision. And so there was a six-factor test that the PTAB set forth, and under that six-factor test, they issued what we're calling now a discretionary denial as opposed to a denial sort of the all prior to that, generally speaking, the denials were sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, based most exclusively on the merits of the petition, if that makes sense. And what's been interesting about that is uh, in some circumstances where discretionary denials have uh, have been issued from the the PTAB panel, uh, they've actually reconsidered uh, the discretionary denial when uh, due to COVID delays, the trial schedule or the, the discovery schedule has stretched out and pushed the trial past when the, the PTAB uh, final written decision would issue. So it's interesting to see the, to see the play uh, in that and to see the PTAB pay attention to those kinds of, I would sort of characterize as mundane uh, district court trial details when they're looking at uh, the issue of of patentability. From my perspective, when the AIA issued, it was an exciting uh, occurrence. It was something where we elevated the review of patentability uh, to the to a panel of folks we we perceived as having more information, uh, more experience with the patentability issue. The entity or some arm of the entity that issued the patent in the first place was going to be the entity that had the the first opportunity to evaluate patentability uh, before even troubling the district court. And the fact that the PTAB just recently in the last year is saying, oh, yeah, district court, you can have it. I mean, it just it it was inconsistent with the way I understood um, the AIA to operate, and that's where I've seen the the biggest impact of having a pro patent T uh, director. 
Well, so you have a awesome Halloween hat on today, Danielle. I'm going to put on my black hat or my uh, devil's advocate hat. I think probably what the pro patentee viewpoint would be was that the AIA wasn't meant to give uh, accused infringers two bites at the apple. And ultimately, that's what's happened is people are able to, if they promptly file a petition uh, with the PTAB, and then they also maintain an invalidity defense at the district court, they're effectively having two swings at it. And I think that, you know, it, it could be viewed as that these discretionary denials are inviting people to choose one forum or the other. And regardless of the motivations, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, it's an indisputably pro-patentee shift, in my opinion. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure what the estoppel provisions are for, if in fact what you're saying is true. I mean, what was the point of an estoppel provision if folks are going to be perceived as having two bites of the apple? Because last I checked, you can't bring the same apple to the district court that you brought to the PTAB. Yeah, I think it just it kicks in a bit later. In any event, you're right. But the, debating the finer points of this is, I think, not what I'm trying to communicate. It's simply that th this is what's happened under the uh, administration, and it's pro-patentee. And you know, I think th th those are two observable things that we could say has happened under the Trump administration to swing cases in in a in the pro-patentee favor. You know, we always talk about the pendulum of patent law, and, and under Trump. Under, under Mr. Trump, the pendulum has swung back towards the patent owner. So this is a good segue to what do each of you think will change under the Biden administration? Do you think that it will still be pro-patentee? Well, Danielle and I, when we get into heated debates about the election with our colleagues and at cocktail parties and every other venue you could think of, there is little, little that is hotter than how these administrations differ when it comes to patent law, right, Daniel? Yeah, that is an accurate description, Mike. That is white Nothing hot. hotter. <laughs> a lot of people don't even want to touch it. In fact, they haven't. People have been talking about the questions that were or were not asked at these various debates. And I mean, I, one of the ones that stood out was no questions about patent law. Right, no questions about patent law. And if we, if we look to Mr. Biden's Build Back Better plan, there's no express discussion around patents. So he's certainly leaving the opportunity to uh, get input from a variety of sources and, and come forward with a plan. But I do, I do think that there are uh, some opportunities for the pendulum to, to swing back and I guess, away from the, the pro-patentee uh, perspective that we've had. I mean, first of all, I have not seen uh, an administration when it flipped, or when there's been a transition in the presidency from, from one party to another party, switch or not switch the, the head of the, of the patent office. So we've, we've seen that in the last two terms with the last two presidents, and I suspect that we'll see a a transition there if Mr. Biden uh, is successful in the in the election. And, and so the I, I guess, Dewana, two things that, you know, immediately could could come to pass, you know, if Mr. Biden's elected and puts in a new head of the PTO. I think you could see some of the presidential decisions regarding discretionary denials. Those could be those could be eliminated or reversed. The guidelines that are published for the examiners, whether to issue or not issue a patent. Uh, we talked about how those are right now pretty pro-patentee in the area of patent eligibility under Section 101. 
those could be modified and be brought into harmony with the, the rules of the federal circuit. That would be a, a shift away from the pro-patentee rules right now. And there, in fact, are some rules that are being promulgated or considered uh, to put into law the rules from the Apple versus Fintive decision and other discretionary denial decisions. And I guess the, under the con Congressional Review Act, those could be uh, reconsidered or revoked once they're passed. So there are some things that are you know, immediately available for a new director, head of the PTO to, to make, make immediate changes that uh, could you know, start bringing the pendulum back in the other direction, should that be what he wants to do. But again, when we debate this, it gets so hot, usually we have to, uh, we have to move to a new topic. <laughs> I was going to say that, like you said, Mike, should that be what he wants to do? Because, you know, he hasn't spoken or spoke on this issue yet. So we don't know whether or not he's going to stick with Mr. Trump's plan um, and maintain the pro-patentee head of the USPTO or if he can go in a different direction. Um, but one direction that both Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump's administration seem to somewhat agree on is China and the role that China, um, China's government is playing uh, with respect to, you know, stealing American intellectual property. Do you guys want to touch on that? They both want to explain how tough they're going to be on China. Uh, so, you know, what, what that what that means for patents or intellectual property is not clear, but I think they've both made a, a pretty clear statement to the American public and to the, you know, in particular to the technology companies that believe that China's perhaps taking, taking our IP without, you know, permission or stealing it or whatever their views happen to be. I think both, both of the candidates have made it pretty clear that, uh, they don't view that as acceptable, and they've made pretty strong statements. They, they've both said the other person's soft on it. Surprise, surprise, they disagree with each other, but they, they both seem probably pretty likely to you know have similar stances on China. I think that's right. It'll be interesting to see what ends up happening for, for both administrations, frankly, if, the, if Mr. Trump continues as president or if Mr. Biden uh, become becomes our next president to to see exactly what what the next steps are because there's been a lot of conversation around it. I'll also be interested to see how the the Chinese national companies who are legitimate going concerns doing business in the United States uh, try try to manage that. So, I mean, with the the geopolitical considerations for litigation, or I guess. Now that there are significant geopolitical considerations for for litigation and where and where you'll be, and it would not, it would be something to consider whether you have a venue provision for your infringement issues uh, to the extent that that's something that that you can um, include in your in your agreements. I mean, obviously that's not going to apply in all instances, but certainly where you've got some kind of joint joint relationship or something that is covered by a contract, you would want to put uh, the venue provision in there. And I would be surprised if anyone wanted to be in the United States from a Chinese national company. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's gonna be a contract issue, I think you know they're gonna probably have an international arbitration clause that's gonna put them in Singapore or Hong Kong or something like that. But you know, with the, with the nationwide venue provisions, if there are suits against 
Chinese manufacturers, they can certainly be brought in Waco to the extent, you know, they can be brought anywhere in the United States. And, you know, we'd expect to see that happening if, if there you know, continue to be suits uh, of that nature. So thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Mike. During our last podcast, we promised to discuss a spooky topic. What topic could be spookier than this, right? <laughs> yes, it's yeah. full of specters and, and phantoms and uh, all those sorts of uh, ephemeral things. And goblins, <laughs> goblins around every corner. Well, I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons this election is so tight. They both have made patent law the topic of the day and that's what uh, that's the topic of the night and it'll be continuing to be the topic uh, all the way through november 3rd <laughs> thank you thank you all for listening tune in next time